I won't be fucking you, Frank. At least, not tonight. What is this fucking Pinocchio? I don't play games. I'm in the mood, all right. I'm in the mood to kill. Okay. Give me some tits! Give me some fucking tits! <laughs> to lick my boss? We got rats. That cocksucker doesn't come in here again unless you ask me. Holy shit. It's a little nigga. No, uh, you look just like your father. Really? Well, laughed at me to the fuck. Money, Chucky? <laughs> Don't work here anymore, baby. Stop my dick now. We have his bullshit. Laughers. Here's the plan. We go out there, grab that bitch, snap on his guinea friends, cut their throats. Can I be you just pinch me? No, boss. But you, Sicilians, you kiss each other on the cheek. You're trying to kill me because I was a strong enemy. I could be a strong ally. They are not my people. I am an African. Happy birthday to you. Welcome back, Kenny. I am the chief of this tribe. Yesterday, he touched Kenny's penis. Yes. It's all about sex. Don't be Kramer because he likes boys. Beat him because he's white. Up and down. Life lost. First I was king, then I was Noomi, now I'm king again. Because I, I don't give a shit what your Quran says. One thing is clear, Emerald City is out of control. Manus must go. I have a heart. I have a heart of a life. You and me, we have different ways, different reasons for what we do. But our goal is the same, the survival of our people. We had a deal at BC. That's true. We did. This is That's me. I thought you Muslims were against murder. Uh, yeah, but it's okay if I kill him for you, eh? <laughs> no. Answer is no. You want him dead, grab a knife. What you need is to learn to take another. Your brother, you sleep all day? No, you know, they just got him on this new medication to calm him down. So. You ask me, he's. Uh, Hello, boys. See, I had this challenger for me, eh? I know you have come to destroy me. See, I am who I am, just as you are. And I do what I do, just as you must. I have everything. Everything I need. Every love satisfied. It's not enough. It'll never be enough. Between the pair of us, we can do great things for our people. But for what? Hello everyone and welcome to Inside Oz, the original Oz Review Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Neil Thompson. Glad you're all here for this, the finale episodes of the first batch of episodes for Series 4, and I apologise for the delay in getting the episode out. Life, unfortunately, just got in the way a bit. But we're here now, and I'm really looking forward to talking about today's episode. Before that, though... Fail! 
It's time to dip into the Inside Oz mailbag, and if you have any questions regarding the show or anything else in general, you can get in touch by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com or by following the podcast on social media on both Instagram and Twitter by following at Inside Oz Podcast. Today's question, though, comes from Christoph Bukowski, and I hope that I've pronounced that correctly for you, Christoph. And they ask, what is the source image in the background when Hill is narrating in the end of episode 4 of season 2? Thanks for your question, Christoph, and I did have to go and take a look back at it, and quite frankly, your guess is as good as mine. It's a picture of a man and woman who look like they're about to get it on in some classic late 90s softcore porn. Yeah, that could be from absolutely anywhere, a stock image, a particular film, who knows. You know I like to do my research, but I don't think I've got the time to go looking for that particular image. So if you want to go looking for it, be my guest. But thank you for your question all the same. Today's episode then, and the finale to series 4A, episode 8, You Bet Your Life. Holding an 8.9 on IMDb, the episode was written by Tom Fontana with additional writing by Sunil Nayer and Bradford Winters, and was directed by Adam Bernstein, making him the person to have directed the most episodes of the show this being his fourth outing in the director's chair. The episode was originally broadcast on August 30th, 2000, a day on which President Clinton, in Colombia on a presidential visit, pledged that a recent $1.5 billion aid package would not lead to military escalation in the country's ongoing war on drugs. Police arrested one Catholic priest, 20 nuns, two laymen and a seminarian in Luang County in China's Fujian province, where it is claimed that Reverend Lu Xiaozhang was severely beaten, while two nuns were released by local parishioners. And in the music charts, Janet Jackson, going simply by Janet at the time, scored her seventh US number one single and her first number one for nearly three years with Doesn't Really Matter. While in the UK, Groove Jet If This Ain't Love by Spiller featuring Sophie Ellis-Bexter topped the singles charts. The US had fallen out of favour with the compilation album as Nelly's Country Grammar replaced Now 4 at the top of the album chart, while Craig David's debut album Born To Do It went straight to number one in the UK album charts selling over 225,000 copies in its first week, becoming the fastest-selling debut album by a British male solo act, a record which he still holds today. This episode also comes with a commentary track from Tom Fontana and Rita Moreno on the Region 1 DVD, and I'll try and sprinkle any interesting tidbits that I glean from that throughout the episode. Back in the 1950s, there was a game show on TV called You Bet Your Life, hosted by Groucho Marx. Every week, Groucho would ask inane questions and insult the contestants. A fake duck would drop down on the string, and Groucho would go, Say the secret word and win a hundred dollars. But not once did anyone ever actually bet their life. Unlike in Oz, no one ever put their life on the line. Kick off with Act 1, which opens with Augustus' opening monologue describing the concept behind You Bet Your Life, the game show from which the episode's title is derived. He explains about how the show's host, Groucho Marx, seen here being portrayed by Bruce Mallers, would ask the contestants, who in this case is being played by Cyril, who's put on his best suit and sorted his hair out, a bunch of inane questions and just generally insult them. From what I can gather, the actual game part of the show played second fiddle to Groucho's comedy. He also says that at some point in the game, a fake duck would drop down and Groucho would tell the contestant, say the secret word and win $100. But at no point on the show did anyone actually ever bet their life. Not like how they do in Oz when they put their lives on the line. Okay, so first off, You Bet Your Life is a game show that I'm not overly familiar, certainly not in its original form with Groucho Marx hosting. I just don't think it was really the done thing at the time for shows like that to be distributed internationally. 
It has had a number of revivals over the years, the second of which occurred in 1992, and which was hosted by alleged Bill Cosby. And that's the one that I can remember seeing bits of when it was shown on Channel 4 here in the UK, which was the same channel that it would eventually show us on its first run. The show has since been revived again in September of 2021 with Jay Leno hosting, but I've yet to see any of that so I can't really comment on its quality. That last line of the monologue is superimposed on the TV screen in M-City, which then static cuts to a news report about the attempted assassination of Devlin, the reporter describing about how it has sent a shockwave through the entire state, as well as the ongoing election campaign. Despite being in what is described as a stable condition, Devlin has announced to the press that he intends to continue with his re-election campaign, and that Clayton, who is described as a suspect despite there being several members of the press that witnessed the shooting and who can identify him as the gunman, is being held at Crown and Shield. The reveal of Clayton gets a huge reaction from the black inmates of M-City, who start to chant his name, while the other inmates sit silent, as we cut to Unit B where the reaction from the white inmates is the exact opposite, with Schillinger, Robson and others chanting for Hughes to be killed. Rather than put up with the shouting and the fighting that will most likely ensue from it, Murphy and McManus call for the unit to be locked down so that things can settle down, and as he shepherds some inmates into their cells, Murphy takes a punch from an unnamed black inmate, but two other COs are in quickly to come to Murphy's aid. Couple of little touches that I liked here were how Vincent is in full-on servant mode to Adebisi now, just sitting beside him with a plate of orange segments so that Adebisi doesn't get hungry at any point, and how there was not only a clear divide in the seating in M-City between the black and the white inmates, but how their respective sections were very different in size, once again reaffirming that shift in the makeup of M-City's population. I also really like when we cut to Unit B how Jazz was really going for it with his chanting of Kill Hughes with this little stomp around that he was doing. Contrast that to the last guy you see before you get to McManus and Murphy who was not putting as much effort in, just lightly waving his arms and not even bothering to join in with the chant. We then flash cut to Leo holding a press conference standing at the same podium where Devlin had been shot and with Mary standing by his side as he addresses the press about his history with Clayton. Clayton Hughes is a close friend of our families, and though I find his actions utterly reprehensible, I feel compelled, out of loyalty to his mother and late father, to stand by Clayton's side at his hour of need. I am therefore withdrawing my name as a candidate for the nomination of Lieutenant Governor. Leo leaves hand in hand with Mary and doesn't take any questions from the press. He's said his piece and that's the end of it as far as he's concerned. He's out of the race and he can just concentrate on running Oz from here on out. Over in M-City, Supreme makes his way over to Mondo and Leroy who are sat playing cards. He tells the two of them that they haven't been selling enough drugs, and when asked about who sells more than them, Supreme points over to Mo Bay. Mondo, having already told Supreme that he'd be bugging, says fuck Mo Bay, but Supreme leaves telling them to up their game. Mondo and Leroy head over to Mo Bay and pull off his headphones that he's using to listen to the TV, telling him that he needs to stop making them look bad, but Mo Bay says that he does what he's told, Leroy replying that they're telling him something different. Mo Bay rises to his feet and turns to face the two of them, and in the worst piece of his put-upon accent so far tells them that he is not afraid of them. Seriously, does anyone buy this as a Jamaican accent? I am not afraid of you. Mondo grabs Mobe by his shirt as a fight nearly breaks out, but Officer Johnson breaks them up and tells Mondo that he needs to learn to control his emotions. 
He tells Mondo to follow Officer Keating, who was mentioned in the last episode, but this is our first time seeing it. Mondo asks whether or not he's been sent to the hull, but Johnson says he's off to answer some questions from Detective Magori. Mondo protests, saying that he doesn't know who she is, nor does he know anything about the Bruno Gergen murder, as we get a shot of Mobe creeping quiet before heading back to his cell, passing Augustus along the way. If Mondo doesn't know who Magori is, then how does he know it's to do with the Bruno Gergen murder? If he knows that's what the interview's about, then he must have some idea as to who she is, surely. Also, you only get a very quick shot of it, but when Mondo and Mobe get in their shoving match, Keller is sporting a massive grin on his face, as he can see that the cracks are beginning to form within the new MC. It might only be Mondo and Mobe at the moment, two guys who are pretty low on the totem pole, but if the foundation starts to crumble, then it won't take long for the whole thing to come down. Cut to Magori interviewing Mondo, who brings up about Mondo and Leroy having got into a fight with Bruno in the gym, which we see a flashback of. Magori has to actually dumb that down a little, as she first off calls it an altercation, a term which Mondo doesn't seem to understand, although he could just be playing up to being a bit dumb. Mondo says that they were just fucking around, but Magori says that they beat Bruno to a pulp, Mondo attempting to brush it off, saying that sometimes they get carried away. I touched upon this at the time, but I'm still of the thinking that Bruno deserved the kicking that he got, so I'm sort of on Mondo's side here. Mondo says, however, that Bruno did live following their altercation, and that he didn't push Bruno down the elevator shaft, and I was actually quite shocked not to see the Bruno falling flashback right there, the show actually showing a little restraint for once. Magori asks if it wasn't Mondo, then who was it? But according to Mondo, the only person grieving Bruno was Mobe, and that the two of them had what Mondo describes as a weirdness going on between them, as Magori stops the tape recorder to end the interview. I did have to go back and re-watch a bit of episode 5, where Bruno, Mondo and Leroy all made their first official appearances, because there is a bit of a logic gap in how exactly Mondo is aware of the so-called weirdness between Bruno and Mobe. While Mondo and Leroy do get transferred to M-City in that episode, Bruno is killed prior to their arrival, so there's no way that Mondo could have seen what went on between Bruno and Mobe. I suppose he could have been brought up to speed about it by someone else, who, judging by their social circles, could have possibly have been Poet, who we'll see later on can be a little loose with holding on to certain information, but there's no way that Mondo has witnessed that firsthand prior to Bruno's death. Mobe heads to the classroom where Adebisi, who looks as though he's in the middle of doing some yoga poses, wants a meeting. There's a chair set in the middle of the room that Adebisi tells Mobe to sit down on, which he does quite nervously, which is understandable. This whole setup doesn't look good for him at all. Adebisi tells Mobe that he's heard some disturbing news, that being that there is an undercover narc in Oz, narc being short for narcotics agent, although it is sometimes used when referring to an informant, which is right on both counts in this instance. Luckily for Mobe, the trustees are under the impression that the narc is a Cecil brand from over in Unit B, who Adabizi says is one of Mobe's customers. Mobe asks them what they want done about it, with Poet and Adabizi saying that they want Mobe to kill that fucking cop, Mobe saying that won't be a problem, as Adabizi dismisses him. For reasons that will become clear in a few minutes, we don't actually see Cecil brand in this episode. He's only referred to by name but I got the feeling that he was meant to be the second undercover cop that was brought in in the last episode for Mobe to sell drugs to. If that is the case, then that presents yet more questions than what we already had for this storyline as to why they've kept that cop in Oz, assuming that it is in fact him, if he was only ever brought in to cover for Mobe's selling. Not that you could have just yanked Brand out of Unit B unannounced, that would have probably raised suspicion among the inmates. 
but had Bran started a fight with someone, then he would have most likely have been seen as being taken to the hall as punishment, which we've seen happen on a number of occasions. From there, you could have had a situation where Bran supposedly gets transferred to another unit, or even another prison entirely to explain his absence. But if his sole purpose in Oz was to be a go-between for a drug sale, why would you keep him in there any longer than he needs to be? That is, of course, assuming that this Cecil Brand is that same person. It could well be someone else entirely, but it just shows how much of a mess this storyline has become. As Lights Out approaches, Mobey is getting ready for bed. As Augustus recalls about how he had his own suspicions of Mobey being undercover when he first arrived in Oz. You know, for a minute, I, I thought you was undercover. I mean, but you can't be. You know, given the amount of shit you were snorting, given the amount of shit you've been selling at me. It's crazy, I know. <laughs> but that night you were so cranked up on tits that your accent suddenly disappeared. I was like, what the fuck is that? And then your girlfriend, what's her name? Kina? I was positive that I recognized her from somewhere. Tore my brain out, trying to remember. Trying to remember where. Then I had a flash. No! No! When they threw me off the roof, I was laying on the cold pavement. And this woman, police, came over to see if I was still alive. That woman, police, she's a dead ringer for Yokina. Well, good night, Mobey. Or. Officer, whoever the fuck you are. You talk that shit to anyone. You're next on the elevator shaft. All right, break it up in there. Augustus says that he isn't going to go blabbing about what Mobe has done, or how he's a cop that breaks the law all in the name of it. But he just wants Mobe to know that he sees him as a fraud, not just by being undercover but as a human being. That proves to be Mobe's breaking point, as he lamps Augustus with a hard right uppercut, followed by a left uppercut which tips Augustus' chair over. Mobe continues to beat on Augustus, hitting him with three more hard shots before the siren begins to sound, which seems to stop Mobe dead in his tracks as he realises that he's pounding on a man who can't defend himself. As CEOs lead Mobe away, Mobe looking back towards Augustus as he goes, Officer Johnson checks Augustus' pulse and says that he's still alive, but that they need a doctor, as Adebisi watches on from his pod. Similar to how he went to Sister Pete to confess to being an addict, Mobey meets with Leo and Detective Magori to confess to the murder of Bruno. Magori asks why Mobey is confessing, Mobey saying that he has committed a crime and as such should be punished, but most importantly because he isn't a fraud and doesn't want to become one of them which was obviously what he felt was happening as he beat on a defenceless Augustus, as the scene closes with Magori placing him in handcuffs, and Leo lets out a despondent sigh, something which we'll see a few times in this episode, and something which gets mentioned in the commentary track. No one does crestfallen quite like Ernie Hudson. The next morning, Leo calls an emergency staff meeting to inform everyone that the arrest of Detective Basil, formerly known as Desmond Mobey for the murder of Bruno Gergen, has obviously put an end to the undercover narcotics operation, at least for the time being. Quan says that, and he says that it's with all due respect, Leo is going to have to accept that the war on drugs is unwinnable. 
But Manus, however, doesn't believe that's true and that they need to keep fighting, stating that they can't just give up on rehabilitation or education. Quenz admits that they may get lucky from time to time, but thinking they'll eradicate drugs from Oz, specifically heroin, is just plain stupid. Taking that as a personal attack, McManus asks who Quenz is calling stupid. Quenz answering back with a brilliant, well if the shoe fits. Leo tries to get things under control, but tensions boil over between Quenz and McManus, especially after Quenz calls McManus a pussy. The one person who's had enough of their bickering though is Sister Pete, who smacks the table repeatedly telling them to stop and even shouts what the fuck is happening. She tells them that she's sick to death of sitting in staff meetings and listening to people with their petty little egos, slapping McManus on the arm a couple of times as she says that, and says that the walls are crumbling down around them and all anyone cares about is themselves. She goes to make another point but stops before she breaks out in tears, leaving the room before she does so that no one sees her crying. Leo tells Ray to go after her as everyone else sits back down. Ray catches up to Pete in the hallway and tries to give her a hug, but Pete tells him that she'll be fine and heads back to her office. A really shocking moment from Pete there as she actually utters an F-bomb, something which would never happen under normal circumstances and really hit home the pressures that everyone is feeling. Fuck gets thrown around on the show quite liberally, which you would expect from a show like this, but Sister Pete saying it makes it mean so much more here. We had the storyline of Pete questioning her vocation in the previous series, which carried on over into this one and some of which we'll come back to in a moment, but more often than not she has to remain level-headed for the good of the people that she treats. But to see her be the one to actually erupt in a fit of rage just hammered home how high tensions are running right now. Cut to the cafeteria, press conference, chapel, general whatever it needs to be area where Pete is holding one of their drug counselling sessions, where Ryan says that he doesn't get cravings anymore, something which Augustus calls horseshit, which I do agree with him in one way, but it has been quite some time since we've seen Ryan using on screen. Keller approaches as Pete asks what he's doing there, Keller proclaiming that he's an addict, saying that he's getting yearnings to start again and that he needs Pete's help. Pete, however, tells Keller that she doesn't want him in the room, something which appears to anger Keller as he steps up onto the res platform and tells Pete that she can't refuse him. Pete sticks to her guns and says that she can, and calls for an officer to take Keller away, Keller giving her a hard stare before he leaves, as Pete tries to get back to the session, but you can see that she is rattled to some degree. In the commentary, Tom and Rita describe Pete's rejection of Keller as a huge moment, and they're not wrong. Sister Pete not only in her role as the prison psychologist, but in her role as a nun, is meant to be receiving of anyone that requires her help. Her actively rejecting Keller plays into the ongoing story of how Pete clearly doesn't believe that being a nun is for her anymore. If she was still committed to being a nun, she would never reject anyone, even after all the mind games that Keller has played. Cut to the reception area where Gloria is waiting for Pete to leave work, and Pete gives her a big hug perhaps indicating that it's been a little while since they've seen each other in this way. The last time we saw Gloria was at the end of episode 6 of this series, so she hasn't been gone long, but the show has always played a little loose with how the actual timeline progresses, so she may have been gone longer than it appears. Before we go any further too, we've got to address Sister Pete's saucy French parade. A definite attempt to distinguish between the Pete we see at work in Oz and the Pete we're seeing outside of that environment. 
We've mentioned before about how we very rarely see anyone outside of the walls of Oz, unless it's for a crime flashback, or on very rare occasions a trip to the hospital. And the closest we've ever come to seeing Pete in this way was when she was part of the death penalty protesters, where she ended up kicking some guy in the nuts. Gloria says that she was going to come to Pete's office, but decided against it. The trauma of the attack and coming back to work too soon still lingering. And Pete even mentions about being surprised that Gloria has made it this far. She asks how Gloria is doing, Gloria saying that she's making small increments, but she then asks Pete the same question, Pete saying that she's in a mood. Turns out that today Pete received the documents to stop being a nun, Gloria asking whether the lunch they're about to have is a celebration or not. Pete, however, still hasn't made a mind up about whether or not she's going to sign it, and says that when you become a bride of Christ, it's hard to accept that they've essentially become divorced once she puts pen to paper. Another thing that gets mentioned in the commentary tracks was how, just for fun more than anything else, Rita and Lauren would do a take of their scenes in Spanish, but they would really ham it up as if they were on some kind of Mexican soap opera. I'm surprised that that didn't make it as an extra onto the DVD sets or something like that, and I would love to see that. Somebody has got that footage somewhere, so we need to unearth it. Cut to Ryan and Claire getting it on once again in the toilets, again, just out in the open where anyone could walk in and catch them. Claire is having a whale of a time, but Ryan's mind seems to be elsewhere as he's having fantasies of having a more loving experience with Gloria, as opposed to the raw fucking that he's having with Claire. On the commentary track, Tom reveals that Kristen was very nervous about doing some of these sex scenes because she'd never gone nude on camera before, something which was made all the more uncomfortable due to the number of people that were inside such a small space, these scenes being filmed inside a real bathroom. This led to an incident whereby Tom, who was on set all the time even though he wasn't directing, in an effort to try and hurry things along said, the quicker we get it done, the quicker we can move on. Dean Winters commented to Tom, who he is very good friends with and who still are to this day, about how it's not as though he has to be naked and to give them a break. Now, whether you believe this is true or not is up to you, but according to Tom Fontana, he broke the tension by stripping naked himself in order to put the actors at ease saying that he wouldn't ask anyone to do something that he wouldn't do himself. Like I say, whether you believe that's true or not is up to you. Also, according to the commentary track, this whole fantasy sequence that Ryan has here was Dean Windsor's idea, purely so that he could do a steamy scene with Lauren Velez. Supposedly, he would keep ruining the take so that they had to keep doing it, and they ended up with nearly 40 minutes of footage. Again, believe that if you want to, but it's there for you to hear on the DVD. Ryan finishes inside of Claire which is a risky move and something which we'll come back to one day, before heading back to M-City where Cyril is kicking over chairs in their pod. Ryan asks him what the matter is, Cyril says that he knows about Ryan and Claire, and that he's going to tell. But Ryan plays dumb at first before telling Cyril to shut up or else he'll hit him, raising his hand to Cyril's face. But Cyril knows that Ryan won't do anything because Ryan knows that Cyril can beat him up. Ryan storming off, cursing this fucking place. Cut to Pete's office where she's speaking with Ray about signing her release of commitment form, saying that once she signs it, she stops being a nun. Ray hands it back to her and asks whether or not she's going to sign it, as Pete takes out a pen and says yes, asking if Ray wants to watch. But he shakes his head and actually looks really upset. It was obviously hopeful that Pete would decide against leaving in the end. Just as Pete is about to put ink on the paper though, Ryan knocks at the door, saying that he needs to talk to her, as Ray says that he was just about to leave. Ryan, however, asks Ray to stay, saying that he would appreciate his input. Pete leaves the form on the table, turning it over so that Ryan can't see it, and asks what's up. 
Ryan tells her that Cyril seems to be okay after the overdose, but he's once again having terrible nightmares and only sleeps for a few hours at a time. With a little help from Pete, Ryan says that the sleep deprivation is beginning to affect Cyril's brain, saying that he's becoming more aggressive, as well as making things up and claiming to see things that are just not there. He asks whether or not Pete can put Cyril back on some kind of medication, perhaps even something to help him sleep better. Pete says that she'll meet with Cyril and decide from there, but Ryan makes sure that Pete understands that the things that Cyril might tell her might seem a little crazy. An interesting point here is how this scene sees Ryan going that extra mile in being manipulative. Ordinarily, he shows his manipulative side to stay ahead of his enemies, but he would always look out for Cyril's well-being at the same time. Even throughout the boxing tournament in the last series, he was drugging people's water bottles in an effort to keep Cyril safe, as well as making some cash in the process. Now though, he's even trying to manipulate the situation by discrediting his own brother, purely to save his own skin. It's quite the act of desperation from Ryan in many ways. Pete meets with Cyril later in the day so that she can come to her own conclusion regarding his mindset. And the nightmares are always the same? Pretty much. Is there anything in your dreams that you see when you're awake? No. Cyril, do you remember anything before your accident? Before I got hit in the head? Yeah. My, my mother's hand, they were rough, all red from working, but soft when she touched me. Anything else? The cross, like that. Around her neck, she prayed to Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? That's a silly question. Why? Because it's not up to me, believing or not believing. We don't choose God. God chooses us. Pete makes one of her rare trips to M-City to follow up with Ryan as she escorts Cyril back. Ryan asks how things went, but Pete says that she doesn't see any of the symptoms that Ryan described. In fact, she felt that Cyril displayed the exact opposite. Ryan, however, says that Cyril is always on his best behaviour around Pete, trying to discredit his brother once again, and that he swears to God that what he's saying is true. But Pete interrupts him, telling him not to swear, which was a great touch considering that Pete showed that she can have a potty mouth just a few moments ago. She says that Cyril is exhausted though, and that they need to find something other than Haldol to help him sleep, and that she'll have Dr. Prostopnik write Cyril a prescription. Another good example of keeping past characters a part of the Oz universe. Pete spots Keller heading into the computer room, and rather than leave, she heads in there herself to talk with him. She greets him as she enters, and Keller is somewhat taken aback by seeing her and gets up to leave, but Pete tells him to sit down. She tells Keller that for the past month or so, she's been preparing to leave the convent, something which stems partly from the conversations they've had together previously, and that Keller made her doubt herself as not only a psychologist, but also as a nun and as a woman. Keller says that he's sorry if he caused Pete any grief, something which she says he definitely did, but she wants to thank him for that, and that most people tumble into their lives, becoming who they are almost by accident, and that they try hard not to look backwards, afraid perhaps to find out that maybe they should have been or done something else. But she says that Keller forced her to look backwards, to question every element of her identity, and that in doing so, 
she discovered that she is a psychologist, and she is indeed a woman, and that she also is indeed a nun, and that all of those parts of her are not an accident. They were put together by someone else, someone far greater, and repeats what Cyril said about God choosing them. Keller asks what happens to those that God doesn't choose, comparing it to being picked to play kickball in grade school, but that you might not get picked for being too small, too stupid, or maybe just being too weird. He tells her that all bullshit aside, a naughty boy Keller swearing at a nun like that, you were dead against that in previous episodes, he wants God to pick him, raising his hand to the heavens asking, pick me, as Pete says that maybe he will, and that there's still time. Keller, however, doesn't think so, removing his necklace which he leaves on the desk before leaving the room as the scene closes. According to the commentary, Keller received that necklace from a cardinal, but I can't remember it ever being seen on the show before. Needless to say, this was another brilliant scene between Rita and Chris, continuing their tradition of having incredible on-screen chemistry. I'll include the clip here, but yeah, they play off each other so well. The scene also exists as a great example of how the other actors being on set constantly help establish how Oz, and particular M-City, is its own little world. As you can see, Boost Mal is doing his power walking a number of times in the background. Hello, Chris. Sister. Stay where you are. As you know, for the past month or so, I've been preparing to leave the convent. Uh, part of that stems from uh, the conversations we had together. You made me doubt myself as a psychologist, as a nun, as a woman. I'm sorry if I caused you grief. Oh, you caused me grief. And uh, I want to thank you for it. What? You know, Chris, most of us tumble into our lives. We become who we are almost by accident. Uh, we tried very hard not to look backwards, afraid um, to find out that maybe we should have done something else. But you forced me to look backwards, to question every element of my identity by questioning do you know uh, do you know what i discovered i am a psychologist i am a woman i am a nun and uh, all of these parts of me are not an accident they were put together by someone else someone far greater we do not choose god God chooses us. What happens to those of us who he don't choose? Like in grade school, you're waiting for one side or the other to pick you to play kickball. But you're too small. You're too stupid. And maybe you're just too weird. Oh, bullshit aside, sister. I want God to pick me. Pick me. Maybe he will. There's still time. You know something, sister? I don't think so. We 
cut to Pete's office where she takes one last look at the release of commitment form before tearing it up. Pete having finally made up her mind and deciding to remain a nun. A meeting with Cyril having put a number of things into perspective. Another interesting thing that they don't really play up, whether that's by design or not is up for debate, but had Ryan not stopped by Sister Pete's office that day, Pete would have actually left the convent. Her hand was literally heading down towards the paper, ready to sign it. But Ryan's knocking at the door changed the course of everything as far as Pete staying a nun is concerned. Had he not gone there, she wouldn't have met with Cyril, and by proxy she wouldn't have then had that talk with Keller. So Ryan has, to a certain degree, changed the course of history without even knowing it. Speaking of Ryan, we cut to him getting sucked off by Claire in the toilet. At least this time they're hiding themselves away in one of the cubicles. As Ryan finishes once again, and we see Claire wiping her mouth. Ryan tells her that they need to stop doing this and that people are beginning to talk. But Claire says fuck them, while Ryan mentions that she'll get fired. Obviously not concerned for Claire's well-being in the slightest, more that he'll have lost his fuck buddy. Claire questions whether or not Ryan's losing his balls because she's been sucking his dick too much, and says that this isn't over until she says it is, and that if he thinks different, she'll crush his balls instead. Channeling her inner Dirty Harry asking, You got that, punk? Ryan actually looking quite scared at what he's being told. Claire tells him that she'll see him same time tomorrow for Cunnilingus and gives her throat a spray with one of those little breath freshener sprays that you never see anyone actually using unless they're on TV or in film. Although I described as what they have as being raw earlier on, I do like that Claire and Ryan do seem to have a routine with the arrangement they have going, today being Ryan's turn to get some, while tomorrow is all about Claire. We get an Augustus monologue about the thrill of gambling to close out Act 1. We gotta stop. What? This. Why? People are talking. Fuck them. Now you'll get fired. What is this, O'Reilly? Sucking your dick so much you're losing your balls? No, I just thought that maybe... This ain't over till I say it's over. You start thinking different. I'll crush these balls of yours. You got that, punk? Good. Same time tomorrow. Conalingus. Let's go. There's nothing like the thrill of gambling. Nothing compares to that incredible feeling of anticipation. You wait breathlessly for the roll of the dice, for the spin of the wheel, for the flip of the card. You wait to see what fortune fate will hand you. Act 2 gets underway with a returning Ribado in the hospital sporting a scar from his recent brain surgery that looks a bit like the River Thames. Boos Malas makes his way through the ward on one of his cleaning rounds and is overjoyed to see Ribado there, proclaiming, Bob, you're alive! Ribado not quite sharing his enthusiasm, saying, Apparently so. A CEO, who looks a bit like John Lovitz, tells Booz Malice to get back to work, which he does, but he also continues to speak to Ribado, asking whether or not Ribado's tumour is benign. Ribado confirming that it is, but he'll have to live with a scar on his head, which he describes as terrible. He's been assured that it will go away in time, but he admits that he feels embarrassed to be seen with it. Channeling Carly Simon, Booz Malice tells Ribado, You're so vain but says that that's a good thing, and that when Ribado got out of the hole he was dragging, but being vain means that you're still alive. Ever the good friend, Boosmalis tells Ribado that the scar is hardly noticeable, Ribado telling him that's bullshit, and in one of the sweetest moments we've seen so far, Boosmalis gives Ribado his hat to cover the scar. Ribado says, but this is your lucky hat. Boosmalis saying that he is lucky, because Ribado is still breathing, 
and the two of them finally get to shake hands. So this serves as putting to bed the storyline we've had of Ribido wanting to be a killing machine, a storyline which was a blessing and a curse in some ways. On the one hand, it helped break up some of the more central storylines, while on the other it played into that aspect that, rightly or wrongly, every character has to be involved in something, which we've seen before doesn't always have to be the case. Usmalas and Ribido were very much background players during Series 3, even comic relief on some occasions, which is absolutely fine for their role. Back in M-City, Augustus is in Boosmaller's pod with him asking whether or not Miss Sally is really coming to Oz. As we pan across to Boosmaller's who is getting himself ready to meet her by putting on his best jacket and bow tie and also combing the little bit of hair that he actually has. Says that when Miss Sally heard about how he's their number one fan and that he went to her house following his escape, she decided that she wanted to meet him. Boosmaller's describing Miss Sally as his goddess. Augustus can't believe that it's actually happening, saying that the next thing you know they'll have Seinfeld up in here, which is a reference to the season 25 opener of Saturday Night Live that aired on October 2nd, 1999, which saw a parody of the show in which Jerry Seinfeld, hosting Saturday Night Live for the second time, was sent to Oz following the conclusion of his own sitcom in a sketch that also featured J.K. Simmons, Lee Turgeson, Dean Winters, and Harold Perriner. As far as SNL parodies go, it's pretty alright. It has all the familiar music cues from the show and was filmed on the Oz set rather than a reconstruction, which makes sense as both shows were shot in New York at the time, Saturday Night Live having been filmed at Studio 8H at Rockefeller Plaza since its debut in 1975, with Oz, as I've mentioned previously, filming in the old biscuit factory at Chelsea Market on 9th Avenue, just two miles away. Boosmalus turns to Augustus and asks how he looks, Augustus asking whether or not Boosmalus wants the truth. Boosmalus would prefer Augustus lie though, which he does by telling Boosmalus that he looks very handsome. Boosmalus grabs some flowers from his bed, Augustus asking where he got them from, but Boosmalus says that that's a secret, and I'm thinking, yeah, I bet it is, otherwise we'll have to come up with a storyline reason as to how he's acquired them, probably best to just sweep it to the side and never mention it again. Boosmalus asks for Augustus to wish him luck. Augustus saying that he's going to need more than that, as we cut to the visiting room where Miss Sally is waiting for Boosmalus to arrive. It all starts off very cordial, Boosmalus shaking her hand before giving her the flowers, as he then takes a seat telling her that it's a great thrill to meet her, saying that he was not for a loop when he heard that she was dropping by and that he's the envy of every cell block, which implies that every unit has access to a television. Miss Sally says that's very sweet to hear and hands Boosmalus an official show baseball cap, According to Tom Fontana, as each series of the show wrapped, the crew would be given a different baseball cap to commemorate that particular year's series, which would normally just be a variant of the show's logo. Series 4A's baseball cap booked that trend as everyone was given a Miss Sally schoolyard cap, something which had accidentally crept onto the show back in Series 3. One of the reasons that Miss Sally's schoolyard came into existence was in part due to the show's tight budget. While the show has had an increase in the finance available to it over the last couple of series, like when the show's used licensed music tracks for example, Miss Sally's Schoolyard was invented so that not only were the inmates watching something different on TV, but the early series of the show saw the inmates mostly watching basketball, footage of which was expensive to license as HBO didn't show basketball as part of its sports coverage. By inventing something for the show, something which we'll see again in series 4B where the show gets its own game show, that reduced the need to have to license expensive footage, which is understandable in the grand scheme of things. Taken aback by the gift, Boost Malice says there are guys in Oz who would kill for this. No, literally, they would kill someone, which gets a laugh out of Miss Sally. 
That, however, proves to be her undoing, as Boost Mallers, being a number one fan and all, says that she doesn't laugh like she does on TV, and that while they're at it, she doesn't look the same either, particularly in the chess department, Boost Mallers saying that she seems smaller. Miss Sally, if that is really her, says that the camera adds £10. Boost Mallers asking, to your breasts? But the jig is up as Miss Sally lets out a fuck. Something which horrifies Boost Mallers, asking, what about yesterday's lesson? Watch your tongue. Which was a pretty funny line. The woman here admits that she isn't Miss Sally, and that she is in fact Norma Clark, a secretary at the station who is in charge of answering all the fan mail. She says that she remembered receiving Boost Mallers' letters after hearing about his escape, and describes them as being sweet, and that she did actually ask the real Miss Sally to visit, but that she got angry and threw Nooter the puppet at her. Figuring that she looks enough like the bitch, Norma thought that she could do the visit herself, but says that she failed, removing the stuffing from her bra, as well as the blonde wig from her head, which admittedly is a pretty good wig. Watching it back, you could totally buy that as being a real hair. Ever the optimist, Boosmalis says that Norma coming means a lot, and that he would like to continue writing, but that he'll write to her instead. Norma saying that would be swell, which was so sweet yet so geeky all at the same time. So this whole storyline has been one that has been on the back burner for some time, first appearing in a number of deleted scenes back in Series 3, with Boost Mallis deciding to write the initial letter, as well as a mention of Boost Mallis visiting with the real Miss Sally, where he also received his baseball cap, which he then gifted to Cyril, and which, as I mentioned, did turn up in the Series 3 finale, presenting an entire paradox that I'm not going to go into. I'll just put it down as being a mistake. As to why they finally decided to go with this storyline now, I can only assume ties into the fourth series extension, something which we'll talk about in series 4b, but it's another example of what I mentioned a moment ago about every character, again, rightly or wrongly, having some kind of story of their own going on. Norma Clark is played by Michelle Schumacher, who long-time listeners of the show will have heard mentioned back on Outside Oz number 2 when we looked at the movie Whiplash, as she is the wife of J.K. Simmons. Born September 28, 1966 in San Diego, California, Michelle studied at the High School of Performing Arts in Chula Vista, California, and made her Broadway debut in 1990, appearing as Syllabub in Cats at the Winter Garden Theatre. Also in 1990, Michelle made her screen acting debut appearing in the home video release of the Coming Out of Their Shells tour of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. With further theatre credits for productions of Chorus Line, Gypsy, The Runaways and Evita, Michelle returned to the Broadway stage in late 1991 playing the role of Tiger Lily in Peter Pan at the Minskoff Theatre. It was here that Michelle met her future husband, J.K. Simmons, Simmons playing the role of Captain Hook for the show's 48 performances, with the two marrying in 1996. In 1999, Michelle gave birth to the couple's first child, a son named Joe, before appearing here on Oz. We get an Augustus vignette talking about how everyone gambles, from Atlantic City card sharks to low-level scratch cards, and how we all take a chance and risk it all, calling it as basic a human need as food, clothing and shelter, and how it's as fundamental to our genetic makeup as killing thy neighbour. The whole thing plays out with Sister Pete, Claire, Poet and Ryan playing what I assume is poker, I've never been much of a card shark. But Sister Pete is dressed as the type of woman who's been coming to the casino for years and is just prepared to live out her days playing whatever game she can. Poet is wearing his best clobber, which definitely makes him look a bit of a pimp, while Ryan looks like a right greasy sleazy motherfucker. 
Claire looks like someone who may be going to the casino for the first time and is probably just wearing what she would do on a normal night out. Cut to death row where Mark continues to work away on his self-portrait. Having got quite a bit of shading and colour done since the last time we saw him, although his portrait does look like it's wearing eyeliner, he could quite easily pass for being a member of the Cure. He's still talking to Moses though, asking what it is that he's doing. Moses saying that he's digging an escape hatch, as we pan around and see that Moses has managed to chip away quite a bit of the wall of his cell. Mark calls him something from his big book of racial slurs as Moses fires back by calling Mark a cumsack, which is a great insult. Leo Lepresti and a female CEO enter the unit, the sound of the rattling gate being Moses' cue to put his poster back on the wall to cover his gaping hole. I've spoken before about how sometimes you just have to go with certain aspects of the show in order for things to progress, and this is one of those instances. Anyone who has ever seen The Great Escape or The Shawshank Redemption will know that both of those feature an element of tunnel digging and explain how they got rid of the evidence. And even back in series 2 when Boost Mallers and Rebido dug their first tunnel, they got rid of the dirt by washing it away in the laundry. The problem with this, however, is that Moses obviously doesn't have the same kind of freedom to get rid of his evidence in the way that they did. So where the hell is he putting it? He can't be keeping it in his sling, so the only other logical explanation would be that he's keeping it under his bed. Leo approaches Mark, and before he can even get to business, Mark is freaking out and throws himself onto his bed covering his ears with his pillow. Plowing on regardless, Leo tells Mark that his execution has been set for two weeks from Thursday and that there are certain matters that have to be discussed, specifically the method with which Mark wants to die. Mark isn't forthcoming though, continuing to hide under his pillow screaming no over and over, Leo telling him that if he doesn't decide soon, then he'll be forced to make the decision for him. Moses is taking great joy in hearing Mark squirm, as Leo eventually tells Lepresti to take Mark down to Psyche. Lepresti makes matters worse by referring to Mark as Rembrandt and smacking his bed with his nightstick. Mark quickly regaining his feet and shoving Lepresti aside, and the female CEO down to the floor. Lepresti soon gets hold of Mark as Moses tells him to slam his ass, which Lepresti does by throwing Mark against the bars of Moses' cell. Seizing his opportunity, Moses hocks the biggest gob of spit in Mark's face, much like how Bret Hart did to Vince McMahon three years earlier, as Mark is led away and the remnants of the spitball trickle down the bars. I'm actually quite impressed at how much spit Moses was able to muster in a short space of time there. Mark is taking the sister Pete's office with his hands and feet cuffed together, but Pete tells Lepresti that she can't speak to Mark while he's chained up. Lepresti assures her that she doesn't want Mark running loose, which Pete seems to accept as she tells Lepresti to wait outside. Lepresti tells her no way, presumably doing so for Pete's own protection, but Pete forcefully tells him a second time to wait outside. Lepresti doing so while looking like a kid who's just been told off by the teacher. Pete breaks everything down to Mark about what's going to come over the next couple of weeks. She references about how she is against the death penalty and how there are others like her doing everything they can to stop it, something which was established back in series 1. But even three years on from that, she still seems to have a reluctance to say the word execution out loud, and also appears to struggle to say to Mark that he has to prepare for the end. This is something that Pete will have done a number of times in the past, not only within our timeline, but also depending on how long exactly she's been working at Oz, and whether or not the death penalty was still being enforced in that time. But that doesn't make preparing someone for what's to come any easier, especially when she is so opposed to capital punishment. Uh, Mark. The warden thought it would be a good idea for us to get together. He says you're, 
You're having problems accepting the fact that the date of your execution is approaching. Problems? I'm scared shitless. I seen Shirley Bellinger go in that Fat Ginsburg die right there in the cell. Get you thinking. Look, I am not a fan of capital punishment, and there are a lot of others like me who are doing everything they can to stop it. But that's not going to happen before two weeks from Thursday. Oh, Christ. Mark, you made a choice to murder your family, and as a result, you don't have a choice about staying alive. So what you need, and what I want to help you do, is to prepare for the end. We fade back to death row where Mark is once again painting while Moses continues to dig. Moses says that he knows what Mark is going through, saying that the reality of what's to come fucks him up too. But Mark tells him that he doesn't need his sympathy, as well as calling him another disgusting racial term. Moses is clearly getting annoyed at the constant onslaught of racism from Mark, and rightfully so as Mark tells him to shut his mouth, or something close to that. Playing up to Mark's increased annoyance, Moses begins to sing Amazing Grace, written by John Howard in 1772 and first published in 1779. The hymn conveys a message that forgiveness and redemption can be possible despite whatever sins have been committed, but Mark isn't getting the message and tells Moses to shut up, calling him a fucking black bastard. That proves to be the tipping point for Moses, who in an amazing moment reaches through the wall where he's been digging, with his fist projecting through the mouth of Mark's painting, symbolic of Mark's words being his downfall. He grabs Mark by the collar, which is quite impressive considering that he can't actually see him, and rams Mark's head into the wall twice before securing a tight grip around Mark's throat. Having heard the commotion, Lepresti comes running into the unit and sees what's going on, eventually opening up Moses' cell to try and break things up. Moses releases his death grip as Mark falls to the floor, Moses sporting a massive grin in the process. Over in the hospital, we see Mark's body being zipped up in a body bag to be taken away to the coroner as Pete and Leo look on, Leo letting out another despondent sigh. Back on death row, Lepresti packs up the few belongings that Mark had into a box, and as he makes his way out, Moses who has been moved to the cell on the opposite side from where he was, seeing as there's now a massive hole in it, asks whether or not he can have Shirley's mirror, similar to how Mark asked for it a few episodes back. Lepresti picks the mirror out of the box and throws it towards Moses, making sure that the mirror hits the floor in order to break, and makes a joke about Moses having seven years bad luck, chuckling away to himself as he exits the unit, and calls for lights out. As Moses takes a look around the unit, we see that he is the only person left on death row. Moses once described about how the unit was much quieter once Shirley left, but it is hauntingly quiet now, as he takes a seat on the bed and looks at his face in the cracked mirror to close out Act 2. And this is the final time we're going to hear Mark read from his big book of racial slurs. I know what you're going through, man. Sometimes the reality of what's going to happen fucks me up too. I need your fucking sympathy, Sambo. You don't quit, do you? I'm trying to work here, so shut your fucking jive-ass mouth. Amazing grace. Shut up. How sweet the sound. I said shut up, you fucking black bastard! Drop it. 
Get that mirror. Give me Shirley said. Oh, gee. Seven years bad luck. <laughs> Lights out! Act three opens up in Unit B where Schillinger is facing off against Jazz at the pool table. Schillinger botches his shot, seemingly going for too fine of a kiss on the ball trying to get into the pocket, with Jazz telling him to step aside and let a real man at the table. I don't know if it's some kind of running gag or if it's just accidentally turned out that way, but for somebody who appears to just play pool all day, Schillinger is either really bad or is very easily distracted when playing. I think we've only ever seen him pot something that was a very easy shot once before. Murphy approaches Schillinger, giving us a number of the Schillinger mispronunciation moments, and tells him that he has a visitor, but Schillinger says that he isn't expecting anyone. Murphy tells Schillinger that the visitor claims to be his daughter-in-law, Schillinger looking mega confused as we cut to the visiting room where Schillinger meets Carrie, played here by Jenna Lemire. Depending on which source you want to believe, Jenna was born on May 2nd in either 1975 in California, which at the time of broadcast would make her 25, or in 1982 in Washington DC, which would make her 18 years of age here, which seems the more likely of the two. Having studied at both Amherst College at New York University and the Sorbonne in Paris, France, Jenna made her Broadway debut in March 1998 at the Vivian Beaumont Theatre appearing in Ah, Wilderness, where she appeared alongside Oz alumni Dylan Chalfie, as well as appearing in the film High Life. Along with credits on TV for Strangers with Candy and The Guiding Light, Jenna's break came in 1999 where she was the announcer for the MTV series Fanatic for five seasons. In 2000, Jenna was to have a minor role in Brutally Normal, a TV sitcom on the WB network, however the show was cancelled prior to the episode airing, before appearing here on Oz. Carrie introduces herself, but Schillinger thinks that this is just some girl trying to pull some kind of scam, Carrie crying at the revelation that Hank never told his dad that he was married. Some random woman turns around from another table and asks if Carrie is okay, but Schillinger tells her to mind her own fucking business which I'm kind of on his side for on, but out lady, this has got nothing to do with you. Carrie explains that she's scared because she's only known Hank for a short while, and that they got hitched after Hank came into some money a few weeks back, presumably that being the money that Hank was getting from Schillinger for the kidnapping. Now though, Hank has disappeared off the face of the earth, and she doesn't know what to do or who to turn to. Asking whether or not Carrie has any proof of the marriage, Schillinger still isn't buying what Carrie's selling but she says that she has their wedding certificate and produces it from her handbag, because apparently that's just the kind of thing that you would carry around with you. Schillinger takes a seat and looks over the document, asking why Hank hadn't told him, Carrie saying that that's Hank in a nutshell, calling him Mr. Secretive. 
Schillinger says that he knows where Hank is, telling Carrie that he's in Miami, and that he gave Hank the money for the trip. Carrie asks when Hank is due back, hoping that it's sooner rather than later because she's got a bit of a situation that she needs his help with. Schillinger offers to help in the meantime as Carrie reveals that she's pregnant, as a shocked Schillinger fades to black to close the scene. Back in M-City, Supreme approaches Mondo, who sat playing chess, and asks him what's going on, but Mondo isn't interested in talking to him. Supreme is pissed at being disrespected, compounded by Mondo getting up and telling Supreme to get out of his face. He tells Mondo that he doesn't want to be peeping his ugly mug any more than what he has to, as Adebisi comes over asking what the problem is, Supreme saying that Mondo doesn't want to be spoken to, and even referring to him as a child. Mondo continues to disrespect Supreme, telling him fuck you, and tells Adebisi that he isn't one of his dogs, nor is he one of his prags. What he is though is sick and tired of Adebisi's bullshit, and leaves the scene. Adebisi tells Supreme, kids today eh, as Supreme says that they need to do something to shut Mondo down, but Adebisi has more pressing matters to discuss than the two head off as we pan up to the top floor, where Ryan and Keller are watching on. Ryan describes how there's trouble in paradise, but Keller doesn't feel as though that's enough to be of any use to them, describing what they have as a fandango that they need to do something about. Ryan says that he doesn't like being in the minority, but asks what can they realistically do as even the Muslims are kowtowing to Adebisi. Kowtowing is a phrase that I've never quite understood, but it means to act in an excessively subservient manner, so it would appear that Saeed and the other Muslims are doing a good job of making it look as though they're united with Adebisi's cause. Keller suggests that they could detonate some well-placed depth charges to help move things along, as Ryan tells him, whatever you need, K-Boy, a nickname which will not catch on, as the two go their separate ways following a fist bump, and we close on a shot of Adebisi and Supreme sat talking at the upstairs table. I've mentioned before about how the show can sometimes move along at a breakneck pace, and this is one of those occasions where it is guilty of that. Within the space of about a minute or a minute and a half, you've had Supreme get in an argument with Mondo, then Adebisi turned up with Mondo leaving soon afterwards, and then we were with Keller and Ryan, and then the whole thing finished on a shot of Adebisi and Supreme. It does kind of work as it keeps the audience up to speed with what's going on, but it also emphasises just how many moving parts there are within the show at any one time. This scene alone had five different speaking characters with a couple more sat at the table. Cut to the laundry room where Glenn Shoup heads down to wash his clothes. Glenn has been a background character since early in series 2, as well as having a speaking role in a series 3 deleted scene, but this is the first credited appearance for Joel West, the actor that plays him. This is the only time that we'll see Glenn in a meaningful way in this series, but he will get a larger role in series 5 where he'll also get the crime flashback treatment, so I'll introduce Joel West another time. For now though, Glenn starts to unpack his washing, which seems to consist mainly of tie-dye t-shirts, only to be greeted by the hand of Nate Shemin rising from behind the counter like some creature from the deep. Nate raises himself further, revealing not only his hand, but his face and chest to be heavily covered in blood having suffered a number of stab wounds, reaching to Glenn for help before falling back to the floor. A scared shitless Glenn runs out of the room shouting, Help! Help! Murder! Murder! as we get a shot of Quern's and Johnson surveying the crime scene, Quern's mentioning that his dear was already in the toilet even before this happened. The score here uses a trumpet with a mute, something which gives the trumpet a softer sound, which actually plays into the cut of the scene, making it look as though Adebisi is playing the score himself. 
You'll remember way back in the early episodes of the podcast, I mentioned about how the music supervisor, Chris Turgeson, along with David Darlington and Steven Rosen, only tried to use instruments that would be found in a real prison. And that is literally the case here, as we finally see this trumpet being used. It's turned up in the score a few times in the past. I do like how it made it look as though Adebisi has been playing the score this whole time, although I'm also wondering exactly where he's got it from. Adebisi has history with making his own instruments on the show, like that time that he had that homemade mandolin which he seemed to have made out of a chair leg and some wire, but this is something which he's either had shipped in from the outside, or he's just stolen from the Oz music room, something which may or may not actually exist. Not in the mood to hear any of Adebisi's playing, Quern storms into his pod demanding answers. Do you know what we got down there? A dead fucking body. Do you know what that means? My record of no violence is kaput. You know what that means? You up to your African ass in shit. This is not my fault. Oh, yes, it is. We had a deal. I would let you do whatever the fuck you wanted as long as you kept the horse shit to zero. A corpse is not zero. So what do you want me to do? I want you to find me the bastard that did this and bring me his ass alive. You want me to play cop? Life sucks all around. Later in the day, Poet and Supreme head up to talk with Adebisi, who sat at the upper table taking notes on something in the newspaper. The print is far too small to read here and probably nothing more than gibberish, but seeing Adebisi doing this got me wondering about whether or not he was doing the puzzles or maybe even playing the markets. Having said that, and despite having mentioned about Adebisi being smarter than he lets on, I'm leaning more towards him doing the Junior Jumble rather than trying to get onto the Nasdaq Index. I do like how he seems to have taken up residence on the upper level though, another indication of him being the true king of the unit with how that level is even higher than the command desk of the COs. He asks Poet what he's been able to find out about the killing, but all Poet can say is that Shemin was a complete loser who had no friends, but as far as he can tell didn't have any enemies either. The only bit of info that they do have is that Shemin and Beach are fucked at some point, with Poet giving the classic finger through the hole gesture, as Adebisi orders for Beecher to be brought to him. Cut to Beecher getting his head slammed into one of the classroom desks, where he's been interrogated by Adebisi while Supreme and Poet watch on, with Leroy and Mondo holding Beecher in place. Beecher pleads his innocence to the killing, and when questioned about it says that he and Shemin only fucked once because Shemin was lousy, as Mondo slams Beecher's head into the desk once again. Making things worse for himself, Beecher tells Mondo that he was a lousy fuck too, something which results in another trip to the desk for Beecher's head. The others give Beecher some more grief as Adebisi heads over to the window to lock eyes with Quern's, Beecher taking one last trip to the desk before the scene closes. Cut to Beecher in Keller's pod, searching high and low for what he believes to be the murder weapon, Beecher having clearly assumed Keller to be the guilty party. Keller arrives and asks Beecher what he's doing, but just before that we get a shot of the inmate next door just sat taking a shit, illustrating just how little privacy the inmates have even in their own pods. He doesn't actually seem that bothered by it, he's just sat there reading his magazine, as Beecher tells Keller that Adebisi has tasked him to find out who kills Shemin, and that if he doesn't he'll get the shit beaten out of him. Keller tells Beecher to get off his stuff as Beecher says that he saw Keller go into the laundry room with Shemin, but that he also saw Keller come out of there alone. Saying that that doesn't mean dick, and rather than provide an explanation, Keller points to his Christ tattoo, which as I've mentioned before is Chris Maloney's real tattoo, and says that he got it the night of his second marriage in Vegas. Whether that's his second marriage that just happened to be in Vegas, or whether he's been married in Sin City on more than one occasion is up for debate, 
and he also says that he just finished running a Ponzi scheme on an elderly couple, an aspect of Keller's backstory that I don't believe ever gets mentioned again. Saying that he wanted to celebrate the night away with some single mole, a little ecstasy and a whole lot of Bonnie, this being the first time that he married her, he tells Beecher that as he and Bonnie fucked he kept screaming, I'm a god, I'm fucking god, and that he wound up at an all night tattoo parlour and got the Christ tattoo because he wanted everyone on the strip to know that he was almighty. Keller realises now that he isn't almighty, but that tattoo isn't going anywhere without a lot more blood. Much like me, Beecher asks what exactly is he supposed to glean from this story, but Keller laughs as he tells Beecher that he's bothered when he sees him fucking other guys, despite saying that Beecher could do whatever he wanted previously. Beecher asks Keller if that's the reason that he kills Shemin, but once again, rather than provide a straight answer, Keller heads out of the pod, but Beecher follows him, pulling him back by the arm and telling Keller that he's going to tell Adebisi what he knows. As we see Saeed and Arif looking on from afar, Keller seems confident that Beecher isn't going to tell Adebisi anything for a couple of reasons. The first being that he knows that Beecher hired Chucky to have a hit put on Hank and that Hank is dead. But he also mentions that Schillinger doesn't know about Hank yet because Chucky has made sure that no one will ever find the body. But what if they do? What if someone does find the body? What happens then? Keller explains that in all likelihood, Schillinger is going to come for Beecher and the rest of his family specifying that Schillinger will murder Holly this time. Beecher tells Keller, fuck you, but Keller gives reason number two as being that if Adebisi finds out that Keller killed Shemin, then they'll kill him. However, Keller believes that Beecher loves him too much to see that happen, which gets no response from Beecher, seemingly confirming Keller's theory. As Beecher contemplates things, Keller shouts down to a passing Mondo asking how's it hanging, Mondo giving Keller the finger, as Keller asks Beecher how Mondo was in the sack and that Beecher should be careful where he sticks his dick, saying that that baby is lethal, as Beecher leaves having finally had enough, turning back to Keller saying that he liked it better when they weren't speaking. I've got mixed feelings about this scene. Lee and Chris are both fine actors, and Rita mentions in the commentary about how they never questioned what was asked of them, they would just throw themselves into what was given to them. They can be really good when given something to work with, but neither of them really got that in this scene. It just doesn't seem to go anywhere, something which Beecher even references within the scene itself. It flat out tells you that this isn't going anywhere. Coming from the age before binge watching and streaming, it does serve well as a reminder of where everything is in regards to the story, hitting the points about Beecher having hired Chucky to put out the hit and that Schillinger isn't currently aware of Hank's death, but other than that, nothing really progresses. Nate Sherman is a nothing character, and while his death was a gruesome yet pretty cool visual, the audience has no connection to him. Why should we care if he's dead or not? Had Keller killed off, let's say, Boost Malice for argument's sake, that would have still allowed for Quern's to be pissed at Adebisi for there being a death in M-City, but it would have also taken out someone with a closer connection to Beecher, as well as being someone that the audience cares about. Even with the introduction of Norma earlier in this episode, with Boost Malice being killed off, that opens the door for Norma returning at some point in the future to perhaps try and figure out why Boost Malice has stopped writing her letters. Granted, it would be a sudden departure for Boost Malice from the show, but it is exactly the kind of thing that Keller would do. He is a sociopath after all, and only focused on his own needs. Instead though, it's Shemin that's killed, and everyone just kind of stays where they are. The only purpose that I can realistically glean from this scene existing is to add another Beecher really loves Keller moment, something which we've had occur a number of times already, only for them to be at each other's throats again soon after. If you have them fall in and out of love over and over, why should we believe that this is the moment that's going to stick? 
We get an Augustus vignette talking about winning and losing, and how winning isn't always a good thing, giving the hypothetical of someone coming into a lot of cash, and how they might start to worry about how they're either going to spend, save, or invest the money, and that you'll probably just buy all the stuff that you don't really need, and get weighed down because of it. Losing, on the other hand, he says, tends to have a purifying effect, and that even when you've got nothing, you are in fact free. The whole thing plays out with Querns in the background, first off in Augustus' box which has been filled with cash, which judging by the different greens on show seems to be a mixture of real money and some fresh off the photocopier, something which carries either 15 years imprisonment or a fine of up to $5,000, only to wind up with nothing other than a very skimpy pair of red trunks sporting a dollar sign over the crotch. I did quite like the first shot of Querns in the box with all the money. Reg Caffey seemed to be having a whale of a time throwing it all about but it looked like something that would have been on many a game show around the time. I'm thinking things like the Crystal Maze or Grab a Grand on Noel's House Party, which I realise are very British examples, but I'm sure that there are many instances of this cash grab booth existing on US TV. Cut to the M-City showers where Ryan enters and removes his vest, and we see that Ryan is sporting what is either a massive scar or a huge scratch on his midsection, and I was drawing a blank as to how he got this. This did lead me to going and doing some previous episode investigating, so I went and had a look back at Dino's crime flashback from episode 1, where we saw that he shot Ryan, but you don't see exactly where Dino shot him. Then in episode 2, when Lenny Barano is conducting the investigation into Dino's murder, he mentions about Dino having shot Ryan in the chest, so I figured, okay, can't be anything to do with the Dino shooting, what about Ryan's flashback? After Ryan crashes the car that he's driving, he has a cut to the head and is a bit groggy, but there's no sign of any injury to that part of Ryan's body. So I moved on to Series 2 when Ryan was having his breast cancer diagnosis. And there, in Series 2, Episode 2, which was Ancient Tribes and which you can listen back to in all the usual places, I noticed that when Gloria is giving Ryan her initial exam, asking about whether or not he has any pain in his nipple, you can see this scar on Dean Winter's midsection. And I did also look back at the closing of episode 6 from this series, when Ryan was stood at his pod glass naked. And you can see it there too, which leads me to believe that this is a real scar that Dean Winters has, and not the result of any long-term storyline planning. For some reason it seems a lot more red in this episode, which seems a bit of an odd choice to make. I don't get why you would suddenly decide to draw attention to it, as there's no obvious storyline explanation as to why it's there. Ryan heads over to have a shave and gets talking to Supreme asking him what's up with Mondo, and says that that boy is nothing but trouble. Supreme isn't in a chatty mood though, and heads into the shower, after placing what I imagine is a very expensive necklace on top of his wash bag. Not wasting a second, Ryan grabs the necklace and places it in his own bag, and we then see him passing it off to Keller, who asks him whether or not Ryan has taken care of the other thing, Ryan informing us that he's made a phone call, and that the delivery truck is going to have a flat tyre. I did like the touch that, whether it was intentional or not, I don't know, that Ryan may have had to have gotten out of the shower room quickly as he's still got shaving foam up near his ears. Over in the kitchen, we see Officer Johnson searching the kitchen staff using a metal detector similar to what you see being used at airports. It's not long until he finds something that shouldn't be, an unknown inmate hiding something underneath his apron, as we also see Mondo going over his checklist waiting for the delivery to arrive. Adebisi also gets buzzed by the metal detector, his Walkman being the thing that set it off, but Johnson doesn't punish him, another example of the rules not applying to Adebisi. Johnson tells Mondo to get in line, but Mondo tells him about the shipment being late, and that if it doesn't get there then they'll have no breakfast for the next day. 
and you just know all hell would have broken loose if the inmates came down the next day to find they had no breakfast. Johnson tells Mondo that it will be back for him later and dismisses everybody else as Mondo heads into the pantry. After finding his carton of smokes on top of the storage, Mondo rummages around to find his matches. Keller sneaks up behind asking if he's looking for these, producing the matches from his pocket. Mondo asks what Keller's doing there as Keller says they have personal business to do. Mondo says that they have no business together as Keller puts the match out on his tongue, which I don't recommend doing, although it probably wouldn't hurt that much. Keller asks Mondo if he wants a blowjob, which Mondo says yes to, showing that he can be quite easily talked around. Keller pulls the door closed as he also takes a moment to look for anyone nearby, as we cut to Quern's office where he's informing Adebisi that Mondo is dead. Perhaps indicating that the spirit of McManus continues to haunt M-City, Adebisi calls that bullshit, but Johnson says that Mondo was murdered in the cafeteria. Adebisi is quick to point out that the cafeteria is not M-City, so Quern's can't pin this one on him, but Quern says that Mondo was still one of theirs, and that Leo is pissed off Royal, and that everything they built is on the verge of collapsing. Adebisi takes a seat as Johnson produces Supreme's necklace, saying that they found it at the scene. Gwens asks if he knows who it belongs to, as Adebisi takes it from Johnson and says that he does. Two COs make their way to Supreme's pod and grab him and Poet and escort them out, Poet looking extremely confused about what's going on as Saeed watches on from his pod. Everything he's done so far in this episode has been happening from a safe distance. Johnson searches the pod as Ryan looks smug about the whole thing, as we then cut to the classroom where Supreme, sat in a chair with his hands cuffed behind him, is being questioned by Quans about the killings of Shemin and Mondo, producing the necklace as evidence. Supreme says it must have fallen off when he was working in the kitchen, which obviously we know is total nonsense, but come on man, even if that were true, that piece must weigh quite a bit, surely you would notice if it just fell off. An enraged Adabizi calls Supreme a cocksucker and punches him in the face, Supreme taking it full force due to his hands being restrained. Supreme only makes things worse for himself by saying to Adebisi, fuck you, and calling him a bitch. Adebisi goes full on beast mode as he throws Supreme to the floor and kicks him repeatedly, which is all the more impressive considering that Adebisi is wearing flip-flops. Gwens just allows this to happen for a little while until CO's run in to separate the two men, Adebisi telling Supreme over and over that he's going to kill him. Officer Johnson runs in having found a bloody shank under Supreme's pillow. Supreme denying that it's his as he's led out of M-City, and Adebisi is escorted back to his pod with the unit having been placed in lockdown. As Adebisi passes, we stay on Beecher and Keller staring daggers at each other from their pods, Beecher doing a slightly creepy yet pretty cool finger-tapping thing on the glass of his. After a period of time, Quernes gives the order to let the inmates out, and we hear the sounds of pod doors opening similar to that of spaceship airlocks. Let him out. Saeed and Arif head out of their pod as Saeed describes the death of Shemin and Mondo as being the hand of God, but Arif asks whether or not their deaths fit in with Supreme's plan to bring down Adebisi. So the show isn't hiding away from that being Saeed's intention, it's categorically stating it right there. Saeed says that their deaths do fit into the plan, but that he's also intending to get close to Adebisi in order to find that one flaw that will finally cripple him, Arif hoping that it'll all happen soon. Poet heads up to Adebisi's pod and knocks on the glass, but his calls go unanswered so he peers through a gap in the curtain to see that Adebisi is eating a banana while an Afroid inmate in a green dress dances for him, with the whole thing being filmed by another inmate. 
Adebisi becomes annoyed at the inmate's dancing, telling him that he told it to do it slowly, and in his annoyance pulls the afro from the inmate's head, and we see that it's Vincent who's been made to dance while wearing a wig, Vincent seemingly having gone full prank for Adebisi. I did try and figure out if this was a licensed track or not, but couldn't get anything back for it, so it could just be a piece of stock music. It does sound like the kind of thing that would have been featured in many a soft porn back in the day, though. There's an awful lot of wah-wah pedal going on on the guitar. Poet notices Saeed, and the two of them head over to chat, Poet admitting that he was struck stupid when Saeed joined forces with Adebisi. They briefly separate when Adebisi and Vincent make their way out of the pod. Which is a bit odd, because if Saeed is with them now, surely Adebisi would be okay with the two of them talking to each other. But better safe than sorry, I guess, and I like the touch of Saeed turning away from Adebisi in disgust. He might be portraying being on the same side in certain ways, but there are still certain aspects of Adebisi's character that he will never be able to hide his true feelings about. Poet even mentions that to Saeed, and says that it makes things tough to take seriously considering Saeed's beliefs. Saeed says that he swore to Allah, but Poet feels that Saeed's oath might have something to do with wanting to stop Adebisi. Saeed, perhaps being a little condescending, says that Poet always did have a vivid imagination, but Poet says that he also has a knack for picking winners and losers, and thinks that Saeed is going to win, or at least he hopes the shit that he does. Saeed asks if that means that Poet is done with the gangster life, but Poet says that the only thing that he's done with is Adebisi in the fucking videotapes, as Poet explains that Adebisi likes to record things for posterity, describing the antics as being live from Party Central. Saeed asks whether or not Poet can get hold of the tapes, Poet saying that Adebisi keeps them in his pod, but he can at least try. Sensing that there's no time like the present, with Adebisi having just made his way downstairs, Saeed tells Poet to get in there now and get looking. Saeed heads downstairs to talk with Adebisi and provide the distraction, leading him away from the lower level tables to have a private word allowing for Poet to get in the pod and go rooting around to try and find the tapes. As Adebisi discusses with Saeed his plan for everyone to go to class and get an education, which frankly isn't a bad idea, and also the complete opposite of where Adebisi was when they all returned to M-City following the riot, Poet gets onto the top bunk of the bed and looks for the tapes in one of the ceiling tiles, which we've seen used as a hiding place before because they can just be pressed out and are a massive design flaw within the unit. Poet, though, has hit payday, finding at least seven tapes. But before he can grab one, Vincent returns to the pod and catches him in the act. Poet gets down from the bed and grabs Vincent around the face, telling him that if he says anything about Poet being in there, then he's dead, Vincent nodding that he understands. Hearing Saeed outside tell Adebisi that he isn't done talking with him yet, showing a great amount of respect by referring to Adebisi by his first name, Poet gets out of the pod just in time and takes a place on the railing looking as though he's been hanging out there the whole time, just as Adebisi returns to his party den. He tells Saeed that the tapes have been hidden in the ceiling tiles, but he didn't get the chance to get one, as we see that Leroy has been watching on from the lower level as the scene closes. Augustus narrates about how Native Americans combated alcoholism and low morale by building casinos on their land to work their way out of poverty and how you can eliminate your own vices by exploiting the vices of others. As we cut back to the laundry room where Arif and Saeed are discussing the next part of the plan. That's crazy. Yeah. Unfortunately, we don't have another option. You're gonna ask Adebisi if you can move in with him. Live in his pod. I need access to those videotapes. What makes you think he'll say yes? Believe me. He'll say yes. 
As Arif and Saeed are talking, Saeed looks up to the classroom and sees Leroy talking with Adebisi, but there's no way that he can be aware of what Leroy is telling Adebisi. We go to underneath the steps of M-City where Poet is enjoying some drugs while reciting the very first poem we heard from him back in episode 1, saying that he doesn't even smoke these as Leroy approaches him. Poet asks him what's up and says that Mondo was a wild boy and asks whether or not Leroy is okay, Leroy saying not really. He takes a hit of drugs from Poet and says that the two of them need to cover each other's backs, Leroy describing Adebisi as a crazy motherfucker. A smacked out of his bin, Poet tells Leroy that he doesn't need to worry about Adebisi for much longer, and says that he and Saeed are working on an angle. So as I mentioned earlier, Poet isn't really one to be trusted with sensitive information as he just lets Leroy in on the plan to overthrow Adebisi. Admittedly, he doesn't give Leroy the exact details when he asks about it. He does say that it's top secret, but he's seemingly unaware that he's put himself and Saeed in tremendous danger. Armed with the information, Leroy heads straight upstairs to Adebisi, saying that it's exactly what they thought, asking Adebisi whether or not he wants him to kill Poet, as Saeed makes his way across the walkway with his things to his new dwelling. Adebisi tells Leroy not yet, as he doesn't want them to know that they know, and welcomes Saeed to the pod, and even asks him which bunk he wants. As I said earlier, Saeed has been on the sidelines throughout most of this episode, which is a little surprising considering how things ended the last time we saw him, and I'm still very much of the thinking that that scene of him and Adebisi coming together should have closed the previous episode. This episode he's been biding his time and waiting on the sidelines like a substitute waiting to come on and get the glory. But before that can happen, we cut to Leo's office where McManus is giving out to him about when Leo last went down to MC, Leo admitting that it was probably around the time that Quern's took over. McManus basically demands that Leo go down there and even drops an F-bomb, Leo rightly telling him to watch the way he talks to him. McManus tells Leo that this isn't about his own ego, and says that the behaviour in M-City is both illegal and immoral, but that Quern's just turns a blind eye. He tells Leo that he gave Quern's a free hand because he managed to keep the violence down, but that now two inmates are dead, and it's time for Leo to step in. The lights go out in M-City as Saeed and Adebisi get acquainted with each other on their first night together as podmates. I remember when you first came to ours. Jefferson Keener come to challenge you. You got one of your fellow Muslims to hit you harder, harder, until you bled. I didn't know what to make of you then. I still don't now. Simon, the both of us have been on an extraordinary journey. And I've tried to learn from mine. Tried to find a common thing that binds us all. Crime. Crime is the common thing. See, we are all of us bad men. Even you. I know you have come to destroy me. Simon. I don't want to destroy you. I want to help you change. That is what would destroy me. See, I am who I am, just as you are. And I do what I do, just as you must. Does that mean you're gonna kill me? <laughs> kill you? I wanna kiss you. But because I admire you more than I desire you. This is what you came for. 
why are you giving this to me? Because I have everything. Everything I need. Every loss satisfied. It's not enough. It'll never be enough. But like you said, between the pair of us, we can do great things for our people. But for what? We're still in ours. I cannot stress this enough. I fucking love this scene. This is my favourite scene on the podcast so far and will quite possibly end up as my favourite scene of the entire show. I can remember watching it for the first time back when I was at university and I absolutely loved the show. I blasted through the whole thing pretty quickly once I got hold of each series on DVD, which was only available through Region 1 Imports at the time, so each set was really expensive to get hold of. But I was absolutely mesmerised by this scene the first time I saw it. Eamon and Adewale absolutely command your attention throughout the whole thing. You really can't take your eyes off them. It really illustrates just how far both men have come in their time on the show, referencing Saeed's arrival in Oz and his interactions with Jefferson Keane, and Adebisi hits upon a crucial point about how crime is the common theme that binds everyone in Oz and how they are all bad men, including Saeed, and that is an important thing to remember. For everything that he has done, for wanting to change Oz from the inside as well as the judicial system on the outside, Saeed is in Oz for a reason. He isn't to be placed on a pedestal as a hero. He did commit a serious crime, much like how Adebisi did. Adebisi telling Saeed that he knows that he's come to destroy him through change was absolute magic. As was him describing about how despite having everything that he wants, it still isn't enough, nor will it ever be. And that while the two of them could be a real force together... What's the point in it all? As at the end of the day, they're still in Oz. Adebisi especially, as he's serving life without the possibility of parole. Tom Fontana describes the scene on the commentary as being something of a Shakespearean confrontation, saying that the tragedy of it is if they could have come to a meeting place, they might have actually done some good together, but they're fated to be in opposition to each other. With the vital piece of evidence that he needs, Saeed gets the tapes of McManus somehow, we don't actually see that happen on screen, but we do see McManus and Querns watching the tape along with Leo in his office. Leo asks for the tape to be switched off and that he's seen enough, McManus gladly switching the tape off with the remote as Querns tries to explain himself, but Leo hasn't got the time for Querns' excuses or claims of whether he knew or not. He tells Querns that none of that matters and fires Querns, as McManus can barely contain his excitement, and asks for Officer Mustache to escort Querns off the property. Had he done the same when he fired Clayton at the end of Series 3, then maybe this series wouldn't have had two separate shooting incidents. But then again, hindsight is a beautiful thing. Quern's asked to at least be allowed to clear out his office, but Leo tells him that they'll send him his stuff and forcefully tells Quern's to get out. Not missing his chance to be a cocky shit, Mamanas tells Quern's to have himself a lovely evening in his best put upon southern accent as Quern's is led out of the office. But fear not everyone. This is not the end of Quern's on the show. We will see him again soon, don't you worry. Leo says that everything is his fault, blaming himself for getting caught up in the campaign to do his job properly. In a great moment between the two of them, Leo asks McManus if he wants M-City back, McManus taking 1.05 seconds to think the offer over before accepting. McManus gives a little fist pump in triumph as he leaves the office, 
before heading back to M-City to give everyone the good news. I mentioned a couple of episodes back about how weird McManus looked wearing jeans, and in this scene he's back to wearing his normal trousers, perhaps indicative of things having to return to normal now that he's back running M-City once again. And I liked how Murphy was stood right behind him as well, the team reunited. Getting straight down to business and amongst a mixture of happy faces and Ryan and Kelly giving each other a special handshake, McManus announces that a number of inmates are being transferred out of M-City, and right at the top of the list is Adebisi. Leroy is also on his way out, as is 97C332, Cody, although for some reason McManus gives him an extra number by adding a zero at the start of it. If you listen closely, it sounds as if Terry Kinney hesitates when saying the line, almost as if he's realised he's messed up. Listen out for it in the clip in a moment. A furious Adebisi heads into his pod where Saeed is praying, and he grabs Saeed by the neck and forces him into the wall. Through terrifying mad eyes, Adebisi asks Saeed if the end is here, but Saeed says that things will go back to the way they were. Adebisi tells him that that won't happen for him or Saeed, and holds a blade to Saeed's neck. Saeed says that Adebisi told him that he wasn't going to kill him, but Adebisi says that Saeed swore to Allah that he was his brother, Saeed telling him that he meant that. Adebisi calls Saeed a liar, and that giving him the tape was his final test of not only Saeed's loyalty, but also his friendship and love, and he cuts Saeed on the cheek. Telling Saeed this is how a man dies, Adebisi attempts to stab Saeed, but Saeed manages to hold him off as they continue to struggle, both men attempting to get the blade into their possession. Outside the pod, everyone hears the commotion and turns to face towards the pod glass, the glass rattling as a body hits against it, and blood engulfs the white curtain. Arif and Beecher look on nervously from the bottom of the stairs as Adebisi makes his way out of the pod with bloodstains on his shirt, as well as leaving bloody footprints. A moment of hush falls over M-City before Adebisi, almost as if he is laughing, coughs up blood before eventually falling to his knees where we see his blood-soaked back, and finally collapses to his stomach. Murphy radios for help as a number of inmates rush to see what's happened as Saeed makes his way out of the pod with a blade in his blood-covered hand. The top of his white vest has also turned a crimson red as Murphy tells him to drop the shank. Saeed eventually complies and is restrained by an officer. As inmates continue to shout and jostle for position, Arif calls to his imam as Beecher looks on concerned for Saeed. But Manus takes the blade as we take one final look at Adebisi's corpse on the M-City floor, before fading to black to close the episode. All right, listen up, everybody. I'm back. The following are being transferred out of M-City. When you hear your name, pack up your belongings, line up behind Officer Johnson. 93A234, Adebisi. 00T255, Tid. 097C332, Cody. 00W216, Washington. So, the end is here, eh? No! More likely things are gonna go back to the way they were before. Oh, not for me. Or for you. You said you were gonna kill me! You swore to Allah that you were my brother! And I meant that. Liar! I gave you that dip. It's a final test of your loyalty. Your friendship! Your love! No! 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 No!
go series four episode eight you bet your life which brings with it a close to the first half of this fourth series the episode ended everything at this point really well and included more than its fair share of memorable moments the killing of mark miles by moses is one of the more notorious kills associated with the show while leo throwing in the towel on his campaign puts an end to the distractions that he's been suffering with lately the undercover narcotics investigation has thankfully been brought to a close due to basil formerly known as Desmond Mopé, turning himself in for the murder of Bruno Gergen. That particular storyline has been, and I called it this earlier on, a bit of a mess watching it back. It's absolutely full of holes in the logic. Not that that's a first-time thing on the show, not by a long shot, but I wouldn't say that previous instances of suspending your belief were as noticeable as this one was. We got a resolution to Sister Pete's storyline about whether or not she was going to leave the convent, and the Beecher shilling a Keller story is still wide open in terms of being able to go in a number of directions. The jewel in this episode's crown, though, are those final 15 or so minutes, which are possibly the best part of the entire show so far. The firing of Martin Quenz and McManus regaining control of MC restore the balance and end the racial tension storyline brilliantly, but that is bookended by two scenes between Saeed and Anabizi that are just simply incredible. The scene between them at night time where they're discussing their journey together and how Adebisi can never have enough power is my favourite scene of the show so far, and quite possibly still will be by the time we get to the end of the podcast run. Having it play out in the dark gives an eerie foreboding to what's going to come next, as does the scene playing out in isolation from any other noise from the rest of the unit. The absence of potential buzzers or alarm bells sounding, as well as there being no possibility of another inmate interrupting them, allowed for the focus to be placed squarely on Saeed and Adebisi. The scene with Adebisi's death, on the other hand, absolute top-draw television, and something that was foreshadowed as far back as Series 1 during the riot. If you cast your mind back to the scene where Adebisi was acting erratically in the hunt for some tits and where Saeed pulled the gun on him, Saeed told Adebisi, I don't want to kill you and that he wanted to save him. Ever since that moment, it's been written in the stars that Saeed was going to be the man to kill Adebisi, but at no point was it ever his intention to do so. Saeed wanted to bring Adebisi down, yes, but he wanted to do it by exposing his immoral side. Killing him was never at the forefront of his mind. The payoff of the White Curtain, something which seemed fairly innocuous to begin with, but which was there for a logical storyline reason, left us with a landmark moment in the show's history. With the blood starting off in a similar size to a fist before expanding to cover the whole sheet, it leaves us on tender hooks, especially when you're watching the show for the first time, and it places us in this unique situation where we're in the same position as the other inmates, watching everything unfold together and desperate to find out who has actually suffered the devastating wound. The fake-out reveal of Adebisi being the victor, 
a reversal of the two men enter, one man leaves trope, was brilliantly done, as it was entirely plausible that Adebisi could have been the man to leave alive. Instead though, Saeed, who was strived for justice from the very first moment he appeared on the show and who hasn't directly killed anyone so far, not even as part of the riot, quite literally has the blood on his hands here and could be looking at the death penalty as a result. I mentioned a few episodes back about a moment where Quines was looking down on the kitchen similar to how McManus would and how it was a case of the more things change the more they stay the same. While the storyline of the new M-City, in which the unit was built on a foundation of racial tension, has now drawn to a close and with the departure of one of the show's main antagonists, Oz as a whole hasn't changed for the better. In fact, it seems to be business as usual. McManus, who was giving Leo shit about the state that M-City had wound up in and there being two dead inmates, has literally been back for a few minutes before winding up with another dead body in what is now his unit. He's been forced into watching his idea, this innovative concept which in many ways defines his entire career, go completely down the crapper under a corrupt regime while he could only watch on from Unit B. He's back now, but he's already got one dead body and an inmate looking the death penalty in the eye. He clearly had a rough time of it down in Unit B. He had as much shit happening down there as he did in MC, but he didn't have bodies piling up under his watch. While there may have been the Unit B inmates that have perished throughout the series, None of them actually occurred within Unit B itself, which makes you wonder that maybe McManus should have stayed there rather than returned to MC. But McManus has returned and very little seems to have changed, almost to the point that it feels as though he's never been away. So it'll be interesting to see him deal with the decision that he's made and where M City goes from here. The reason for Adam Easy being killed off at this point in the show is pretty straightforward. Adewale had made it known to Tom Fontana and the other producers that he wanted to leave the show in order to pursue a film career. And as we covered on the last episode regarding Philip Kafsnoff's departure from the show to star on Strong Medicine, that request was granted, and Adebisi was written out of the show. The death of Adebisi has been a topic of much debate over the years as to whether that should have been the end point of the show or not. I can see an argument for that, as he was by a long way the main villain within MC, but I doubt that you could have ended the show with his death like how we got here. The death of one of the show's two main villains in terms of inmates, Schillinger being the other, needs an element of closure. So had Adebisi's death been the culmination of the show, you would have had to have had that occur in what would have been the show's penultimate episode. You can't just have his death occur and that be the end of the show. I'm not saying that every show has to have a conclusive ending, I'm all for a bit of ambiguity and personal interpretation from time to time, but even if you were to have just one last episode in which Saeed is either convicted of Adebisi's murder and sentenced to death, something which would perhaps portray him as the ultimate victim of the judicial system he's trying to change, or have him convicted of accidental manslaughter and his sentence be extended, we at least know what happens to him in the fallout. If he were to be sentenced to death, we don't necessarily need to see that happen. Just knowing where his story eventually ends would have been conclusive. However, as things stand currently at this stage in the timeline, I don't think that ending the show now would have been a good idea, as there are far too many plot threads yet to be tied up, as well as others that have been introduced very recently, or in some cases in this very episode. As I said, we do get some storylines wrapped up here, such as Sister Pete deciding to stay in the convent, as well as Leo making his decision to withdraw from the race for Lieutenant Governor, but even then there are still too many loose ends. We came into the show with Beecher, a decision which has essentially made him the show's main character, and we've been through so much with him over the course of the show's 32 episodes so far. But if we end things now, that would mean that there is no resolution to his storyline with Schillinger, a storyline which has seen four deaths occur across both men's families, 
and which is set to boil over once more should Schillinger find out about the circumstances surrounding Hank's murder. Nor would we get a resolution to what happens with Keller and Beecher's on-again, off-again love saga. Even in this episode, we had the introduction of Carrie as well as her giving Schillinger the news that he's going to become a grandfather. But if you end the show now, are we to just assume that Carrie has the baby and just visit Schillinger from time to time? Bruce Mallers was in the early stages of digging a new tunnel in the last episode and was introduced to Norma in this one. If you end the show now, what becomes a viva of those storylines? Of course, another way to look at it would be that the introduction of Carrie and Norma actually serve as the beginning of storylines that are to come in Series 4B. The decision to extend the fourth series having come down from HBO during this batch of episodes production, and something which I will discuss more on the next episode as to why Series 4 is twice as long as every other series of the show. No deleted scenes to talk about for this episode, so with a death toll of 4 for this episode, we first need to say goodbye to Nate Sheman, who unfortunately went uncredited and I've been unable to find a name for the actor, as well as Mark Miles and Mondo Brown, played by Michael Quill and Garno Grills respectively. Having fulfilled Mark's prophecy of being the next man on death row to die, Michael Quill briefly worked behind the camera and he writing credits for two episodes of Twice in a Lifetime on PAX, now known as Ion Television. Following his Oz run, Michael would only earn a handful of further acting credits, appearing in minor roles in movies such as 2002's The Hit, as well as Malibu's Most Wanted and Picture the Pinup in 2003. In that same year, Michael earned his final acting credit, playing the role of Sal in eight episodes of Days of Our Lives. After developing a bit of an attitude towards the trustees that received no real payoff and then being killed off-screen by Keller, Gano Grills has continued to act in minor roles in film, including an uncredited role in 2001's Hannibal, a film which features a number of Oz alumni, as well as Bloody Crisis, 13th Child and Bond the System, all of which were released in 2002, while in 2003 it was credited for roles in Rhythm of the Saints and Marcy X. That same year, Garner also returned to TV, appearing in Law & Order Criminal Intent, and would appear for the second time in the original Law & Order in 2005. In 2007, Gano would work as an associate producer on the documentary film Wu, the story of the Wu-Tang Clan, while in 2008 he provided voiceover work for the video game Midnight Club Los Angeles, in addition to appearing on TV for one episode of 30 Rock. That same year, Gano appeared in the movie Cadillac Records, written and directed by Oz alumni Darnell Martin, and which also featured Eamon Walker portraying Howlin' Wolf. Gano had minor roles in the movies Women Do It Better and Code Blue in 2009 and 2010 respectively, which would be his final acting credits for some time. In 2013, and away from the entertainment spotlight and detailed in a 2018 article for Guru magazine, Gano formed Galiticus, a group which has been described by some as an emerging cult, where Gano identified himself as not only an SRI master, but also as Lord Thoth and on occasion Ganesh. Claiming that he had been sent to Earth to lead 144,000 souls into Ascension, Garner described how, quote, These gods have not only revealed my own god form, but they have also pledged their sort to the Galiticus movement here on Earth. End quote. Claiming that his group was specifically chosen, Garner also explains, quote, Our movement is the only covenant given to Earth that has the power of 22 main gods of light and an extended board of 100 exalted beings who drive the frequency of evolution of the higher worlds. We have the keys for all that is necessary for evolution and the emancipation of humanity." End quote. With additional claims of having performed exorcisms as well as being able to revive the dead, Garner was also labelled Kendrick Lamar a propagator of Lucifer, and also claims that during a meditation he was visited by the spirit of Michael Jackson who told Garner that he wanted the world to know that he was murdered. 
All of these claims can be found in B. Schofield's 2018 article in Guru Magazine, which I have linked in the description for this episode so that you can read it at your own leisure and draw your own conclusions on these claims. And for the record, any claims of Galaticus being a cult movement have been made by individuals who are in no way associated with the Inside Oz podcast. Along with his... spiritualism, let's call it, Garno returned to acting in 2021, appearing as a video director in Hulu's Wu-Tang and American Saga. At the time of recording, Garno's latest acting credit is listed as being for the movie Profane Language, which is currently listed as being in post-production. This episode also marks the final appearance of Leo's wife Mary, meaning that we also have to say goodbye to Pamela Isaacs. After leaving Oz, Pamela returned to the theatre stage, appearing off-Broadway in New Yorkers, and which won Pamela an Obie Award in 2001. Along with appearances in the movies Swim Fan and Season of Youth in 2002 and 2003 respectively, Pamela won rave reviews for her role as Muzzy von Hosmere in the touring production of Thoroughly Modern Millie which ran from July 2003 beginning in Kansas City, Missouri, and finished one year later in Los Angeles, California, with Les Spindle of The Hollywood Reporter describing Pamela as vivacious, and that Pamela pulled off a tour de force triumph bolstered by her lively new songs. Without question, though, the biggest departure of this episode, and of the entire series so far, is that of Adewale Akanue Agbaje in the role of Simon Adebisi. Having been granted his request to leave the show in order to pursue a career in movies, Adewale's first project after leaving Oz was in the role of Lochnar in The Mummy Returns, released in May of 2001. While the film gained mixed reviews from critics, it was a hit at the box office, earning $68.1 million in its opening weekend in the US, which at the time was the second largest opening weekend of all time, the record at the time being held by 1997's The Lost World Jurassic Park. Also in 2001, Adewale appeared as Sebastian in the movie Lip Service, while in 2002 he was cast as Nakwana Wombosi in The Born Identity. Along with credits for the movies The Mistress of Spices and Get Rich or Die Trying, Adewale returned to TV in 2005 when he appeared as Mr. Echo in the second season of Lost on ABC, reuniting with his Oz co-star Harold Perrineau. Appearing for a total of 21 episodes and once again drawing inspiration for his character from his Nigerian roots, Adewale earned himself a nomination in the Best Supporting Actor on Television category at the Saturn Awards, as well as a win at the Screen Actors Guild Awards, where the show won the award for Outstanding Performance by an Ensemble Cast in a Drama Series. Adewale would request his exit from the show in 2006 in order to return to England and take a break from acting following the death of his foster parents. During this time, Adewale began to brainstorm ideas for a film that he wanted to direct. Returning to acting in 2009, first appearing as Herschel Dalton, aka Heavy Duty, in the movie G.I. Joe Rise of the Cobra, Adewale returned to TV during the eighth season of Monk on the USA Network, appearing in the episode Monk and the Foreign Man. In 2010, Adewale would appear in the movie Faster, where he appeared with his Mummy Returns co-star Dwayne Johnson, while in 2011 he also appeared in the movies Killer Elite and The Thing, a prequel to John Carpenter's 1982 film of the same name, and a film which I think is underrated. Adewale would earn recurring roles on TV in Strike Back Project Dawn and Hunted in 2011 and 2012 respectively, while in 2013 he would earn credits on films including Bullet to the Head, as well as joining the Marvel Cinematic Universe in Thor The Dark World, a film directed by Oz alumni Alan Taylor. In 2014, Adewale appeared in the movies Pompeii and Annie, while in 2015 he would appear in Trumbo, where he appeared as Virgil Brooks, and was nominated along with the rest of the cast at the Screen Actors Guild Awards for Outstanding Performance by a Cast and a Motion Picture, 
That same year, Adewale voiced the title character in Major Lazer on Fox, where he reunited with Oz co-star J.K. Simmons, and also appeared as Malco in a recurring role on Game of Thrones during the show's fifth season. An appearance which made me shout at the TV, Everybody run, it's Adebisi, much to the confusion of my wife. In 2016, Adewale would join the DC Cinematic Universe playing the role of Killer Croc in the critically annihilated Suicide Squad a film so bad that no amount of recuts or special editions could possibly save it, and also voiced the lead in the animated movie Bilal, A New Breed of Hero, which premiered at the Dubai Film Festival at the end of the year. In 2017, Adwali appeared in the movies Wetlands, playing Detective Babel Johnson, while on TV he voiced Xavier the Blacksmith on Disney's Tangled the Series, as well as appearing in Ten Days in the Valley, where he played Detective John Bird for ten episodes. Also in 2017, Adewale can be seen as Olizugan Okorocha in HBO's spin-off sports film, Tour de Pharmacy. 2018 was a landmark year for Adewale, as he released the movie Farming, also known as In My Skin in Certain Territories. Written and directed by Adewale himself, which also saw Adewale launch his AAA Studios production company, the film centres around Adewale's personal experiences of being fostered by his birth parents to a white working-class family as well as his teenage years as part of the Tilbury Skin Skinhead Gang. Premiering on September 8th, 2018 at the Toronto International Film Festival and starring Damson Idris, Kate Beckinsale, John Daglish and Gugu Mbatha-Raw, as well as featuring an appearance by Adewale himself playing the role of his birth father, the film received a limited theatrical run the following year, opening in the UK on October 11th, 2019. Due to its limited release, the film grossed only $89,374 at the box office, but was recognised at the Edinburgh International Film Festival, winning its Michael Powell Award for Best British Film, as well as at the National Film Awards where it won three awards, with Adewale winning the Best Actor Award, as well as Kate Beckinsale winning Best Actress, and the film itself winning Best Drama. The film also saw Adewale showcase his musical side, writing and performing a number of tracks for the film's soundtrack. If you haven't seen Farming, I recommend that you do, whether that's by streaming it wherever you can or by picking up a physical copy. It is pretty grim going in places due to its subject matter, but it's an absolutely worthwhile experience, especially because it's based on Adwali's real life. You can tell that film is a real passion project for him. Seriously, go and watch it however you can, and who knows, maybe it will be a bonus episode of the podcast in the not-too-distant future. Following the release of Farming, Adewale starred as Sevi Johnson on ABC's The Fix, although the show was cancelled after only one season. In 2021, Adewale lent his vocal talents to one episode of Centaur World, playing the role of Johnny Tea Time, while at the time of recording, his latest acting credit is listed as being for an appearance in the upcoming third season of his Dark Materials, as well as the movies Marlowe, which is currently filming and scheduled to be released in 2023, and Late in Summer, which is currently listed as being in pre-production. The numbers don't lie, and they spell disaster for you! So, normally this would be the part of the show where we would go through the Roll Call of the Dead for the series, but with Series 4 being longer than the other series of the show, I'm going to do a full Roll Call of the Dead when we get to the end of the series to get the true number. As it currently stands though, we have a total of 22 deaths so far in Series 4, up from the 10 that we had at the end of the 8 episodes in Series 3, meaning that Series 4 so far has had an increase of 120% in the death rate, averaging out at 2.75 deaths per episode, which is also up on Series 3's average of 1.25. That is also the highest average deaths per episode for any series of the show so far, 
and also breaks the two deaths per episode barrier for the first time. Similarly, I'm going to do the Series 4 rating as a whole once we get to the end of Series 4, so that the whole thing has one average number. I'm also going to move the awards section for the series to the back of the series as well, as the show was actually back on the air before the awards season got underway, which meant that the show was able to pick up some last minute nominations as a result. So rather than do that section twice, I figured it easier just to go through all that once we got to the end of this Series 4 proper. As things currently stand though, Series 4's IMDB rating averages out so far at an 8.6, up ever so slightly on where Series 3 finished, and equaling the average rating of Series 1. But again, that is based on the 8 episodes we've had in this series so far. It won't be until we get to the end of Series 4 that we get this series' true numbers. As with everything else, the series MVP for Series 4 will be revealed when we get to the end of it, but as far as the episode MVP goes, it can only go to Kareem Saeed. As I mentioned a moment ago, even from way back in Series 1, it was destiny that Saeed would be the man to slay out of easy even though that was never his intention. For all his desire to implement change in Oz and the wider legal system, Saeed has seen M-City crumble into a bleak dystopia, far from the paradise that Adebisi claimed it would be under the rule of black men. Saeed has spent a lot of time on the sidelines, not only in this episode, but throughout this entire fourth series, but when his time has come to either provide counsel to his fellow Muslims or to other inmates, he has always stepped forward to be the best person that he can be. Having rebuffed Adebisi's advances on a number of occasions, he took a calculated yet still incredibly high risk in aligning himself with Adebisi, with the intention of bringing him down from within. Adebisi, however, through help from Leroy, was aware of Saeed's intentions, and decided to test the man of God by giving him exactly what he desired, the videotapes that detailed Adebisi's idea of utopia. Determined to help Adebisi change his ways right up until the very end, it was only in an act of desperation that Saeed had to carry out what had been prophesied, but by doing so he has set the ball rolling to usher in a new era within M-City, one with its most menacing threat removed, with Utopia now having its chance to truly flourish. So for those reasons, Kareem Saeed wins the episode MVP. Okay everybody, listen up! So, what lies ahead for the continuation of Series 4 now that we've reached that stage of the show? Ordinarily, and ever since I launched the podcast nearly four years ago, I would work on the first half of the following series while the podcast was on its break and get the first half of that series episodes banked and ready to be released, and then work on the second half of the episodes while the ones that had already been completed would come out in the regular two-week intervals. Doing things that way has been a curse in some ways. There were certain moments where I had to make changes to certain episodes due to events that occurred after the recording of them, and in one case I had to place a disclaimer at the start of an episode along with certain other edits, let's call them. I also do the podcast in my spare time. Inside Oz doesn't provide me with living, and due to fitting the show around my work and my own family life, I actually ended up launching Series 4 much later in the year than what I originally intended. That first episode I think I finished at the end of January 2021, but didn't end up getting it released until October, which was way later than I wanted. So... What I have decided to do, rather than take an extended break and come back later in the year, I am going to continue to work on the episodes for this second half of Series 4 and release the episodes as soon as they are finished, meaning that I hopefully won't have to make any massive changes to things that have previously been recorded should any real-world events force me to do so, and it just keeps things that bit more up to date. 
The aim, and I stress this is what I'm aiming for, this isn't set in stone, will be to release a new episode each month, maybe even every six weeks or so. So rather than making you wait until the middle of the year or beyond for the series to come back, episodes will be available as soon as they are ready to go. Of course, the best way to make sure that you know exactly where things are with the podcast are to follow the show on Instagram and Twitter, but to also subscribe wherever you listen to the show so that you get those new episodes as soon as they're released. So, with that being said, if you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do so over on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castbox, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, depending on where you are in the world, or wherever you get your podcasts from. There you will find the first three series of Inside Oz, as well as what we've covered in Series 4 so far, and you will also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes as well. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, leave a five-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast, and if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com, or on social media on both Instagram and Twitter, where you can get all the updates about the show by following the handle at insideozpodcast. So that is everything for Series 4A, but I will be back soon with the first episode of Series 4B, Episode 9, Medium Rare, which seems really odd saying Episode 9. And there may even be an Outside Oz bonus episode along the way too, but make sure to follow the podcast on social media to keep up to date with everything that is on tap for the show. But until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the original Oz Review Podcast. Catch you later, everyone, and stay safe out there.